Section 7 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Two old houses and three young women. There are times and places that come back yet again, but that when the brooding tourist puts out his hand to them, meet it a little slowly or even seem to recede a step as if in slight fear of some liberty he may take. Surely they should know by this time that he is capable of taking none. He has his own way, and he makes it all right. It now becomes just a part of the charming solicitation that it presents precisely a problem, that of giving the particular thing as much as possible without at the same time giving it, as we say, away. There are considerations, proprieties, a necessary indirectness. He must use, in short, a little art. No necessity, however, more than this, makes him warm to his work, and thus it is that, after all, he hangs his three pictures. 1. The evening that was to give me the first of them was by no means the first occasion of my asking myself if that inveterate style of which we talk so much be absolutely conditioned in dear old venice and elsewhere on decrepitude is it the style that has brought about the decrepitude or the decrepitude that has as it were intensified and consecrated the style there is an ambiguity about it all that constantly haunts and beguiles Dear old Venice has lost her complexion, her figure, her reputation, her self-respect. Yet with it all has so puzzlingly not lost a shred of her distinction. Perhaps indeed the case is simpler than it seems, for the poetry of misfortune is familiar to us all. Whereas in spite of a stroke here and there of some happy justice that charms, we scarce find ourselves anywhere arrested by the poetry of a run of luck. The misfortune of Venice being, accordingly, at every point, what we most touch, feel, and see, we end by assuming it to be of the essence of her dignity, a consequence we become aware, by the way, sufficiently discouraging to the general application or pretension of style, and all the more that, to make the final felicity deep, the original greatness must have been something tremendous. If it be the ruins that are noble, we have known plenty that were not, and moreover there are degrees and varieties. Certain monuments, solid survivals, hold up their heads and decline to ask for a grain of your pity. Well, one knows, of course, when to keep one's pity to oneself, yet one clings even in the face of the colder stare to one's prized Venetian privilege of making the sense of doom and decay a part of every impression. Cheerful work, it may be said, of course, and it is doubtless only in Venice that you gain more by such a trick than you lose. What was most beautiful is gone. What was next most beautiful is, thank goodness, going. That, I think, is the monstrous description of the better part of your thought. Is it really your fault? 
if the place makes you want so desperately to read history into everything. You do that wherever you turn and wherever you look, and you do it, I should say, most of all at night. It comes to you there with longer knowledge and with all deference to what flushes and shimmers that the night is the real time. It perhaps even wouldn't have taken much to make you award the palm to the nights of winter. This is certainly true for the form of progression that is most characteristic for every question of departure and arrival by gondola. The little closed cabin of this perfect vehicle, the movement, the darkness and the plash, the indistinguishable swerves and twists, all the things you don't see and all the things you do feel, each dim recognition and obscure arrest is a possible throb of your sense of being floated to your doom, even when the truth is simply and sociably that you are going out to tea. Nowhere else is anything as innocent so mysterious, nor anything as mysterious so pleasantly deterrent to protest. These are the moments when you are most daringly Venetian, most content to leave cheap trippers and other aliens, the highlight of the mid-lagoon and the pursuit of pink and gold. The splendid day is good enough for them. What is best for you is to stop at last, as you are now stopping among clustered pally and softly shining poops and prows at a great flight of water steps that played their admirable part in the general effect of the great entrance. The high doors stand open from them to the paved chamber of a basement, tremendously tall and not vulgarly lighted, from which in turn mounts the slow stone staircase that draws you further on. The great point is that, if you are worthy of this impression at all, there isn't a single item of it of which the association isn't noble. Hold to it fast that there is no other such dignity of arrival as arrival by water. Hold to it that to float and slacken and gently bump, to creep out of the low dark felse and make the few guided movements and find the strong crooked and offered arm and then, beneath lighted palace windows, pass up the few damp steps on the precautionary carpet. Hold to it that these things constitute a preparation of which the only defect is that it may sometimes, perhaps really, prepare too much. It's so stately that what can come after? It's so good in itself that what upstairs, as we comparative Bulgarians say, can be better? Hold to it at any rate that if a lady in a special scrambles out of a carriage, tumbles out of a cab, flops out of a tramcar, and hurdles projectile-like out of a lightning elevator. She alights from the Venetian conveyance as Cleopatra may have stepped from her barge. Upstairs, whatever may be yet in store for her, her entrance shall still advantageously enjoy the support most opposed to the momentum acquired. The beauty of the matter has been in the absence of all momentum, elsewhere so scientifically applied to us from behind by the terrible life of our day, and in the fact that, as the elements of slowness, the felicities of deliberation, doubtless thus all hang together, 
the last of calculable dangers is to enter a great Phoenician room with a rush. Not the least happy note, therefore, of the picture I am trying to frame is that there was absolutely no rushing, not only in the sense of a scramble over marble floors, but by reason of something dissuasive and distributive in the very air of the place, a suggestion under the fine old ceilings and among types of face and figure abounding in the unexpected, that here were many things to consider. Perhaps the simplest rendering of a scene, into the depths of which there are good grounds of discretion for not sinking, will be just this emphasis on the value of the unexpected for such occasions with due qualification, naturally, of its degree. Unexpectedness, pure and simple, it is needless to say, may easily endanger any social gathering, and I hasten to add, moreover, that the figures and faces I speak of were probably not in the least unexpected to each other. The stage they occupied was a stage of variety. Venice has ever been a garden of strange social flowers, it is only as reflected in the consciousness of the visitor from afar, brooding tourist even, call him, or sharp-eyed bird on the branch, that I attempt to give you the little drama. Beginning with the felicity that most appealed to him, the visible, unmistakable fact that he was the only representative of his class. The whole of the rest of the business was but what he saw and felt and fancied what he was to remember, and what he was to forget. Through it all, I may say distinctly, he clung to his great Venetian clue, the explanation of everything by the historic idea. It was a high historic house, with such a quantity of recorded past twinkling in the multitudinous candles that one grasped at the idea of something waning and displaced, and might even fondly and secretly nurse the conceit that what one was having was just the very last. Wasn't it certainly, for instance, no mere illusion that there is no appreciable future left for such manners, an urbanity so comprehensive, a form so transmitted as those of such a hostess and such a host, the future is for a different conception of the graceful altogether, as far as it's for a conception of the graceful at all. Into that computation I shall not attempt to enter, but these representative products of an antique culture at least, and one of which the secret seems more likely than not to be lost, were not common. Nor indeed was anyone else in the circle to which the picture most insisted on restricting itself. Neither, on the other hand, was anyone either very beautiful or very fresh, which was again exactly a precious value on an occasion that was to shine most to the imagination by the complexity of its references. Such old, old women, with such old, old jewels, such ugly, ugly ones, with such handsome, becoming names. Such battered, fatigued gentlemen, with such inscrutable decorations. Such an absence of youth, for the most part, in either sex. Of the pink and white, of the bud of new worlds. 
such a general personal air in fine of being the worse for a good deal of wear in various old ones it was not to society that was clear in which little girls and boys set the tune there was that about it all that might well have cast a shadow on the path of even the most successful little girl it also let me not be rudely inexact it was in honour of youth and freshness that we had all been convened the fiance of the last unless it were the last but one unmarried daughter of the house had just been brought to a proper climax the contract had been signed the betrothal rounded off i'm not sure that the civil marriage hadn't that day taken place the occasion then had in fact the most charming of heroines and the most ingenuous of heroes a young man the latter all happily suffused with a fair austrian blush the young lady had had besides other more or less shining recent ancestors a very famous paternal grandmother who had played a great part in the political history of her time and whose portrait in the taste and dress of eighteen thirty was conspicuous in one of the rooms the granddaughter of this celebrity of royal race was strikingly like her and by a fortunate stroke had been habited combed curled in a manner exactly to reproduce the portrait these things were charming and amusing as indeed were several other things besides the great venetian beauty of our period was there and nature had equipped the great venetian beauty for her part with the properest sense of the suitable or in any case with a splendid generosity since on the ideally suitable character of so brave a human symbol who shall have the last word this responsible agent was at all events the beauty in the world about whom probably most the absence of question an absence never wholly propitious would a little smugly and monotonously flourish the one thing wanting to the interest she inspired was thus the possibility of ever discussing it there were plenty of suggestive subjects round about on the other hand as to which the exchange of ideas would by no means necessarily have dropped you profit to the full at such times by all the old voices echoes images by that element of the history of venice which represents all europe as having at one time and another revelled or rested asked for pleasure or for patience there which keeps the place supremely as the refuge of endless strange secrets broken fortunes and wounded hearts two there had been on lines of further or different speculation a young englishman to luncheon and the young englishman had proved sympathetic so that when it was a question afterwards of some of the more hidden treasures the browner depths of the old churches the case became one for mutual guidance and gratitude for a small afternoon tour and the weight of a pair of friends in the warm little campy at locked doors for which the nearest urchin had scurried off to find the keeper of the key there are few brown depths to-day into which the light of the hotels doesn't shine and few hidden treasures about which pages enough doubtless haven't already been printed my business accordingly let me hasten to say is not now with the fond renewal of any discovery 
at least in the order of impressions most usual. Your discovery may be, for that matter, renewed every week. The only essential is the good luck, which a fair amount of practice has taught you to count upon of not finding, for the particular occasion, other discoverers in the field. Then, in a quiet corner, with the closed door, then, in the presence of the picture, and of your companion's sensible emotion, not only the original happy moment, but everything else is renewed. Yet once again it can all come back. The old custode shuffling about in the dimness jerks away to make sure of his tip. The old curtain that isn't much more modern than the wonderful work itself. He does his best to create light where light can never be. But you have your practised groping gaze, and in guiding the young eyes of your less confident associate, moreover, you feel you possess the treasure. These are the refined pleasures that Venice has still to give, these odd happy passages of communication and response. But the point of my reminiscence is that there were other communications that day, as there were certainly other responses. I have forgotten exactly what it was we were looking for, without much success, when we met the three sisters. Nothing requires more care, as a long knowledge of Venice works in, than not to lose the useful faculty of getting lost. I had so successfully done my best to preserve it, that I could at that moment conscientiously profess an absence of any suspicion of where we might be. It proved enough that wherever we were, we were where the three sisters found us. This was on a little bridge near a big campo, and a part of the charm of the matter was the theory that it was very much out of the way. They took us promptly in hand. They were only walking over to San Marco to match some coloured wool, from the manufacture of such belated cushions as still bloom with purple and green in the long leisures of old palaces, and that mild errand could easily open a parenthesis. The obscure church we had feebly imagined we were looking for proved, if I am not mistaken, that of the sisters' parish, as to which I have but a confused recollection of a large grey void, and of admiring for the first time a fine work of art of which I have now quite lost the identity. This was the effect of the charming beneficence of the three sisters, who presently were to give our adventure a turn in the emotion of which everything that had preceded it seemed as nothing. It actually strikes me even as a little dim to have been told by them as we all fared together that a certain low, wide house, and a small square as to which I found myself without particular association, had been in the far-off time the residence of Georges Sand. And yet this was a fact that, though I could then only feel it must be for another day, would in a different connection have set me richly reconstructing. Madame Sand's famous Phoenician year has been of late immensely in the air. A tub of soiled linen, which the muse of history, rolling her sleeves well up, 
has not even yet quite ceased energetically and publicly to wash. The house in question must have been the house to which the wonderful lady betook herself when, in 1834, after the dramatic exit of Alfred de Musset, she enjoyed that remarkable period of rest and refreshment with the so long silent but recently rediscovered, reported, extinguished Dr. Pagello. As an old sondiste, not exactly indeed of the premier heure, but of the fine high noon and golden afternoon of the great career, I had been, though I confess too inactively, curious as to a few points in the topography of the eminent adventure to which I here allude, but had never got beyond the little public fact, in itself always a bit of a thrill to the sondiste, that the present Hotel Danielli had been the scene of its first remarkable stages. I am not sure, indeed, that the curiosity I speak of has not at last, in my breast, yielded to another form of wonderment, truly to the rather rueful question of why we have so continued to concern ourselves, and why the fond observer of the footprints of genius is likely so to continue, with a body of discussion neither in itself and in its day, nor in its preserved and attested records, at all positively edifying. The answer to such an inquiry would doubtless reward patience, but I fear we can now glance at its possibilities only long enough to say that interesting persons, so long as they be of sufficiently approved and established interest, render in some degree interesting whatever happens to them, and give it an importance even when very little else, as in the case I refer to, may have operated to give it a dignity, which is where I leave the issue of further identifications. For the three sisters, in the kindest way in the world, had asked us if we already knew their sequestered home, and whether, in case we didn't, we should be at all amused to see it. My own acquaintance with them, though not of recent origin, had hitherto lacked this enhancement, at which we both now grasped with the full instinct, indescribable enough, of what it was likely to give. But how, for that matter, either, can I find the right expression of what was to remain with this of this episode? It is the fault of the sad-eyed old witch of Venice that she so easily puts more into things that can pass under the common names that do for them elsewhere, too much for a rough sketch was to be seen and felt in the home of the three sisters, and in the delightful and slightly pathetic deviation of their doing us so simply and freely the honours of it. What was most immediately marked was their resigned cosmopolite state, the effacement of old conventional lines by foreign contact and example by the action, too, of causes full of a special interest, but not to be emphasised, perhaps, granted, indeed, they be named at all, without a certain sadness of sympathy. If style in Venice sits among ruins, let us always lighten our tread when we pay her a visit. 
Our steps were, in fact, I am happy to think, almost soft enough for a death chamber, as we stood in the big, vague sala of the three sisters, spectators of their simplified state and their beautiful, blighted rooms. The memories, the portraits, the shrunken relics of nine doges. If I wanted a first chapter, it was here made to my hand. The painter of life and manners, as he glanced about, could only sigh, as he so frequently has to, over the vision of so much more truth than he can use. What on earth is the need to invent in the midst of tragedy and comedy that never cease? Why, with the subject itself all round so inimitable, condemn the picture to the silliness of trying not to be aware of it? The charming, lonely girls, carrying so simply their great name and fallen fortunes, the despoiled decaduta house, the unfailing Italian grace, the space so out of scale with actual needs, the absence of books, the presence of ennui, the sense of the length of the hours and the shortness of everything else. All this was a matter, not only for a second chapter and a third, but for a whole volume, a denouement and a sequel. This time, unmistakably, it was the last Wordsworth stately, shade of that which once was great. And it was almost as if our distinguished young friends had consented to pass away slowly in order to treat us to the vision. Ends are only ends in truth for the painter of pictures. They are more or less conscious and prolonged. One of the sisters had been to London, when she had brought back the impression of having seen at the British Museum a room exclusively filled with books and documents devoted to the commemoration of her family. She must also then have encountered at the National Gallery the exquisite specimen of an early Venetian master in which one of her ancestors, then head of state, kneels with so sweet a dignity before the virgin and child. She was perhaps old enough, nonetheless, to have seen this precious work taken down from the wall of the room in which we sat, and on terms so far too easy, carried away forever, and not too young at all events to have been present now and then, when her candid elders, enlightened too late as to what their sacrifice might really have done for them, looked at each other with the pale hush of the irreparable. We let ourselves note that these were matters to put a great deal of old, old history into sweet young Venetian faces. 3. In Italy, if we come to that, this particular appearance is far from being only in the streets, where we're apt most to observe it, in countenances caught as we pass, and in the objects marked by the guidebooks with their respective stellar allowances, it is behind the walls of the houses that old, old history is thick, and that the multiplied stars of Baedeker might often best find their application. The Feast of St. John the Baptist is the Feast of the Year in Florence, and it seemed to me on that night that I could have scattered about me a handful of these signs. 
I had the pleasure of spending a couple of hours on a signal high terrace that overlooks the Arno, as well as in the galleries that open out of it, where I met more than ever the pleasant, curious question of the disparity between the old conditions and the new manners. Make our manners, we moderns, as good as we can. There is still no getting over it, that they are not good enough for many of the great places. This was one of those scenes, and its greatness came out to the full in the hot Florentine evening, in which the pink and golden fires of the pyrotechnics ranged on the Ponte Caraia, the occasion of our assembly, lighted up the large issue. The quote, good people, end quote beneath, were a huge, hot, gentle, happy family. The fireworks on the bridge, kindling river as well as sky, were delicate and charming. The terrace connected the two wings that give bravery to the front of the palace, and the close-hung pictures in the rooms, open in a long series, offered to a lover of quiet perambulation, an alternative hard to resist. Wherever he stood, on the broad loggia, in the cluster of company, among bland ejaculations and liquefied ices, or in the presence of the mixed masters that led him from wall to wall, such a seeker for the spirit of each occasion could only turn it over that in the first place this was an intenser, finer little Florence than ever, and that in the second the testimony was again wonderful to former fashions and ideas. What did they do in the other time? the time of so much smaller a society, smaller and fewer fortunes, more taste, perhaps as to some particulars, but fewer tastes at any rate, and fewer habits and wants. What did they do with chambers so multitudinous and so vast? Put their state at its highest, and we know of many ways in which it must have been broken down. How did they live in them? without the aid of variety? How did they, in minor communities in which everyone knew everyone, and everyone's impression and effect had been long, as we say, discounted, find representation and emulation sufficiently amusing? Much of the charm of thinking of it, however, is doubtless that we are not able to say. This leaves us with the conviction that does them most honour. The old generations built and arranged greatly for the simple reason that they liked it, and that they could bore themselves, to say nothing of each other when it came to that, better in noble conditions than in mean ones. It was not of the faraway Florentine age that I most thought but of periods more recent, and of which the sound and beautiful house more directly spoke. If one had always been homesick for the Arno side of the 17th and 18th centuries, here was a chance, and a better one than ever, to taste again of the cup. Many of the pictures, there was a charming quarter of an hour when I had them to myself, are bad enough to have passed for good in those delightful years. Shades of grand dukes encompassed me. Dukes of the pleasant latest sort who weren't really grand. 
there was still the sense of having come too late yet not too late after all for this glimpse and this dream my business was to people the place its own business had never been to save us the trouble of understanding it and then the deepest spell of all was perhaps that just here i was so supremely out of the way of the terribly actual florentine question this as all the world knows is a battleground today in many journals with all italy practically pulling on one side and all england america and germany pulling on the other i speak of course of the more or less articulate opinion the improvement the rectification of florence is in the air and the problem of the particular ways in which given such desperately delicate cases these matters should be understood the little treasure city is if there ever was one a delicate case more delicate perhaps than any other in the world save that of our taking on ourselves to persuade the italians that they may do as they like with their own they so absolutely may that i profess i see no happy issue from the fight it will take more tact than our combined tactful genius may at all probably muster to convince them that their own is by an ingenious logic much rather ours it will take more subtlety still to muster for them that dazzling show of examples from which they may learn that what in general is ours appear to them as a rule a sacrifice to beauty and a, a triumph of taste the situation to the truly analytic mind offers in short to perfection all the elements of despair and i am afraid that if i hung back at the corsini palace to woo illusions and invoke the irrelevant it was because i could think in the conditions of no better way to meet the acute responsibility of the critic than just to shirk it eighteen ninety nine end of section seven